All right, well, we're, we are jumping right into uh, the message this morning. Uh, we are, we're continuing our series or our study through the book of Acts. And Acts is a historical text uh, that really highlights and, and shows us and describes the, the birth of the early church and, and how it begins to grow. And up until chapter 4, what we see is a handful of believers through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, launch and grow the church to thousands of people in a very relatively short amount of time. That is a lot of growth that's happening. Thousands of people literally within a just week's time frame of, of what's happening here. And so up until this point in Acts, all we've really been seeing is growth in the church. And chapter 4 ushers in this next step of the evolution of the church. When it comes to face, it's first opposition. And so it, it comes up against the first opposition. How, how is it going to make it through this? And all of this started through a miraculous event. And last week, we, Pastor Justin started on the, the first half of chapter 4. And he talked about that Peter and John were arrested and taken before the, the Sanhedrin, which... Uh, the Sanhedrin was, uh, they were, uh, the, the group was called the Sadducees, and they were a group, they were a part of the religious sect of the time, but they were more of a political group and kind of the governing body over the Jewish community. And so here they're, they're now on trial before the Sanhedrin. And so now, today, what we're going to be looking at is what's the conclusion? We saw the first part of that trial, and, and Peter and John give this, this speech talking about Jesus and laying some groundwork for some stuff that we'll look at. So now we're going to look at the second half of that. What does the council decide? And how does the church, how does their decision affect this new movement that, that it's still really in its infancy stage. And there's so, with so many things happening and so quickly, how do Peter and John really maintain focus within all of it? And how does the church now, in light of this, this opposition, something new that they're facing, how will they handle it? How will they get through? Will they continue to grow as a movement, as, as a church? And also, what about, what does this mean for the believer who decides to put his life and give their life to Jesus and live their life for Jesus? And the answer to all of this is, which is something that we'll learn over and over and over again is that the answer is always the same, and it leads us to our main point today, that if you remember anything about what I'm about to tell you, remember this, because it's such an important principle. It's such an important principle for us to know and to understand that if we truly want God's best for our life, if we want to take the next steps that God has for us, of knowing, of knowing God, of finding freedom, meaning, meaning that we are free from the life we used to live prior to Jesus as we continue to move towards God, of discovering our purpose so that we can take that purpose and those gifts and those talents 
to use them to begin to make an, an eternal difference. We need, to, we need to know this. We need to understand it. And that is this, that it's always all about Jesus. It's always all about Jesus. And so today we're talking about a life centered on Jesus. Do me a favor, bow your heads, close your eyes, repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, speak to my heart, change my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, when I was 15 years old, a movie came out called Apollo 13. And I loved that movie. It was, why I loved it so much is because there was so much suspense in the movie. I had never heard about Apollo 13 before, didn't know the story, didn't know if you've never seen it, sorry to give it away, but I didn't know if the guy, if the crew were going to make it back in time or, or make it back to earth alive. So there was so much suspense in that movie, but there was so much ingenuity as well. It, it just seemed like once one problem was solved, another one would come out, and between NASA and the crew, like they were able to figure these things out. I was like, that is really cool. And there was one scene in particular that has really stuck out to me that I've never forgotten. And it's the scene that I like to call the uh, the manual thrust scene, or the manual burn scene there. And that is where, as they're going along, as they're, as they're on their way back to earth. So if, if you don't know, just give you a premise, there was an accident on board, an explosion on board. In order to save the crew, they had to abandon their mission of landing on the moon. Now the, the mission was getting the crew home. And so as they were on their way, NASA realizes, you know what, their trajectory is off. So in order to get back to the right trajectory and the speed, they needed to burn their engines a little bit. Well, the problem was is that their main computer was shut off to reserve power. They only had enough power to turn the computer on one time. They couldn't, and they couldn't leave it on for a long time, so they were going to leave it off up until they had to get back on earth and, and, and come down through the atmosphere. And so they told the crew, they said, listen, you're going to have to perform this manual burn. And they said, okay, well, how are we going to do that without the computer? And they said, you need to find a fixed object in space and, like, focus on it. And... Now, I've never been to space before. I don't know if anybody in this room has ever been to space before. If you have, you're pretty cool, and I'd like to take you out to lunch. Hey, but, like, so I've never been there, but space is dark, and there's, like, billions of stars. So how do you find, there's no trees, there's no buildings, mountains, anything for, for them to have, like, a, man, a landmark. And so they're like, what, what do we use? And they look out the window, and they see earth through the window. And they say, okay, we found our fixed object. As long as the earth is in the center of our window, we'll be okay. And so they perform this burn, keeping it, keeping it there. Long story short, they come back, survive, yay, you know, all that. But, so, earth was their constant, okay? It was, it was the center. It's what they were able to focus on that kept them safe. Their, their focus, it was the center of, of what they were doing. 
Now, when I was a senior in college, I was at this kind of weird time in my life because I was about to graduate, and I thought, what am I going to do? Like, real life is, is going to happen. I, I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I was going to do it at or, or how it was all, all going to work. And it was a time in my life where I have felt, even to this day, I never felt as close to Jesus as I did during that time. Because I was like, I really need you right now, Jesus. It was, I felt so close to him at times, I felt like the presence of the Holy Spirit was tangible. And during my free time, I would wake up, I would wake up before class and I would spend time in the word. I would spend time praying. I would go to class. And even if I had a 20 minute break before, in between classes, I'd come back to my dorm room and I'd turn on worship music and I'd spend time praying. I would, I would be reading books about uh, moves of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Like I just felt so close to Jesus. He was at the center of my life, when I made him the center of my life, when I put my focus on him, I felt so close to him. As long as I stayed out of the way and followed his way, I was okay. Maybe some of you today find yourself in that place where you're going, I feel closer to Jesus now than I ever have before in my life. So much so that every thought, every word, every action, everything you do is lined up, is that you're lining it up and making sure you're centering it on Jesus before you even respond, before you even act. If that's you, keep it up. Keep pressing in. Keep going. Now maybe you're here and you said, it's been a, it has been a long time since I've felt that way, that I felt so close to him. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I've never had that closeness of a feeling of being around Jesus. I want to tell you, it's okay if, if that's you because it's always available. Being close to Jesus is always about, he's always there. All you need to do is begin to center your life around him, and you can start now. You can start right now. When it comes to life, in life, whether it's the good, the bad, or the ugly, those things in life that happens, the cause can always be brought up to. It's either because the good, the bad, or the ugly because of your centered relationship with Jesus or because of your lack of a centered relationship with Jesus. Now let me explain that to you because I think sometimes we miss some of this idea that we look at our lives and we look at the world around us and all that's going on, all the things that we have, and we tend to start thinking that this life is really about us. That the things that go on, again, whether it's the good, the bad, or the ugly, like, it has to do with me. You know, we've been conditioned, chase the American dream, get the things you want, how you feel, all of these things. And we make this life out to be about us when it's not. It's actually all about Jesus. Whether you're serving him or you're not serving him, this life is still always about Jesus. 
And so whether good things are happening to you, bad things or the in-between, it can be held up to, it's either because you're living this life centered on Jesus or you're not living this life centered on Jesus. All of that really doesn't matter because it's always all about Jesus. This life has never been about us, but we can sometimes make it about us. In fact, the Bible says your life is not your own, but it is always all about Jesus. And chapter four of the book of Acts is a great reminder of this principle. See, when it comes to the message of Jesus, one of two things happens. The message of Jesus will either stir hearts to trust in the message of Jesus, or it will stir hearts to reject the message of Jesus. Opposition. Opposition will always arise when there is the sharing and teaching and talking about Jesus. Opposition will always arise. I mean, look at it in the first three verses of, of Acts. Here, Peter and John, through the Holy Spirit, perform this miracle. And now they are, all they're doing is they're, they're explaining the miracle to the people. And the miracle points to Jesus. And what happens, and I thought this was a very interesting thing as I read it. What happens in verse 4 is, is that Luke puts this, this thing in here about numbers, and I'm like, I don't understand it. It says, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, that, again, that comes off of that Peter and John are explaining this miracle. Remember, one of two things, hearts are stirred towards the message or hearts are stirred to reject it. Well, about 5,000 people, and they are not really sure if it, they were talking about, is this just 5,000 people at that moment that we're hearing this? Or this is about the total number of those that had believed since Pentecost. Regardless, it's a lot of people believing. But at the same time, as Jesus, or as, as Peter and John are sharing Jesus, the opposition arises and the temple guards and some of the council, they hear this, and it's stirring their heart to reject it even more. And so before they, they even go into it, Paul or Luke puts this in here. And I believe that Luke puts this in here, showing how much the church has grown, to correlate and to tie in when Jesus is shared. When Jesus is talked about, it leads to growth. Because people believe and the numbers grow. And he, puts it, and he puts this in there. So opposition will always come when there is growth. And so that leads us to a question about the church. And I'm not talking about the church as this building and what we do here on Sunday mornings. We will always tell and share about Jesus here on Sunday mornings. We will always teach the word of God here on Sunday mornings. But the, the church that I'm talking about is all of us as individuals, as the Bible talks about the body of Christ, that we as individuals make up the church. 
And as Pastor Justin always says, that evangelism, the sharing and telling of Jesus shouldn't just happen on Sunday mornings, but the primary time that it happens is between Monday and Saturdays. That means that responsibility lies on the church, us as individuals. So the question is this, if opposition always arises when there is growth and when Jesus is talked about, are we as a church going easy on the enemy and giving the enemy a break, or are we facing opposition because of the sharing of Jesus? Now, Jesus promised us. Jesus promised us many things. Not everybody will like this promise that he tells us in John. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also Persecute, persecute you. This is a promise. Jesus said, they're not going to like you when you talk about me. I suffered. You will suffer. And that's contrary sometimes to what we've heard people say. Oh, man, give your life to Jesus and everything will change. Well, things do change, but sometimes not in the way we think. Like, life doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get easier. It will probably get harder because opposition will always arise. When Jesus is talked about, when Jesus is shared, when growth happens. That's why anytime you have some sort of incredible experience with the presence of God, you're growing in your faith. Why does it always seem that now more and more roadblocks are getting in the way? You're like, wait a minute, God, I, I, man, I committed to, to getting closer to you, growing more in my faith, and now this is happening. Why is this happening? Because you've just put a target on your back for the enemy. And you might say, well, listen, I, Pastor Enos, I, I can't do it. Like, I can hardly handle the stress and the opposition that I face just in my job or with my kids, my family. And I would tell you this, you're absolutely right. You can't do it. I can't do it. Peter couldn't even do it. To a young girl, he couldn't even tell her that he knew Jesus. But how does Peter do it? Verse 8 told us he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And as Pastor Justin said, it's a new filling of the Holy Spirit. Like when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and God gives us power, it's not like that power goes away, but he gives us this fresh new power. He, He enlarges our capacity for more of him. What we need is the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives to get through it. The Holy Spirit enables us to live life more effectively. So if you're living a comfortable life right now, maybe it's because you haven't done anything for the enemy to take notice of from you. If you want to be like Jesus, and what Jesus says here it starts to make a little bit more sense when we read things 
Like, consider it pure joy when you face trials and persecution. Why? Because you're doing what your Savior did. You're doing what Jesus did. That now you're doing something that the enemy has taken note of. It says, we've got to stop them from doing what they're doing because people are coming to know Jesus. The church is growing, and that is not a good thing for the enemy. We need the power which gives us boldness of the Holy Spirit. You want to face opposition and get through that opposition, we need the Holy Spirit. I love this quote by Kent Hughes. He says, when the Spirit reigns in our life, when the Spirit reigns in our lives, there will be persecution and a heavenly focus. Is the Spirit reigning in our lives. Now we're going to jump right into the text. I know Pastor Justin went through verse 13 last week, but we've got we've, we've to put this on this front half of this verse because before 13, uh, Peter and John were given this speech talking showing their authority and knowledge of Scripture. And then this, is, this comes right after the speech. This is the beginning of the Sanhedrin's response. And so let's look at it. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John were ordinary, unschooled men. They were basically amateurs when it came to knowing about Scripture and these religious things. But their abilities uh, to minister were, were abilities beyond their, their human capabilities. And so this, the Sadducees took note of it. They realized that these were unschooled amateur men in this, but they spoke with this boldness and authority of Scripture. And what it did was it actually reminded them as Peter and John were talking, they couldn't help but to think back weeks earlier when right before them, Jesus stood in that same room talking and using that same authority and knowledge of Scripture that the Sanhedrin were confused, they were awestruck, they were amazed by that, but through seeing that, guess what happened? It says they recognized. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John's life were, were so transformed by the relationship with Jesus that it changed everything about them. And here, they're, they're speaking with the same authority and boldness. And now, guess what? They're also performing some of the same miracles that Jesus himself performed. And the Sanhedrin's looking, looking at that going, what? How? So they recognize they had been physically with Jesus, but what they didn't recognize is that Jesus was still with them through the Holy Spirit. And he's still with all of us through the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John are there looking and they recognize, they see this and they're amazed. I love this quote by Alexander Alexander McLaren. 
It says, a soul habitually in contact with Jesus will imbibe sweetness from him. Just as garments, I love this picture. Just as garments laid away in a drawer with some perfume absorb fragrance from that beside which they lay. The Sanhedrin could smell the fragrance of Jesus from Peter and John. When they looked at Peter and John, they were seeing Jesus. What do people see when they look at us? Does the fragrance of Jesus exude from our bodies, from our lives, from our words, from our actions? What do they see? What do they see? Verse 13. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They had nothing to say, so they were amazed and they were speechless. Now get this, as, the, as part of the governing body, the Sanhedrin had every right to, uh, to do something with Peter and John for them speaking about Jesus. They could punish him. They were in the right. But it says, but seeing the man who was there, they could not deny that God had performed a miracle. They couldn't deny it. It was, it was there. So they were, they were awestruck. Verse 15, they said, for I will give, or sorry, and this goes to uh, uh, something that Jesus said because they were awestruck. Uh, Luke says, or Luke records it, Jesus' words. He says, for I will give you a mouth, uh, give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Another fulfilled promise from Jesus that as they're standing before this council, he gives them the words and no one can contradict them. No one can say anything about it. Verse 15 says, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they, they, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. So they ask Peter and John to leave. And this word conferred, the Greek with that makes it, it's, it, what it means is that they were in there for a long time. This wasn't just a little side huddle that they were having. But they dismissed them and they had been discussing for a while. Then it goes on in verse 16 saying, what shall we do with these men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. They can't deny it. So what's happening is they, they're not looking at this as a theological problem. And we know this because they use the words, these men. It's not like what Peter and John told them. They're like, wow, this is like flipping our whole mind and everything that we know on top of its head. No, they, they, they dismiss it as not even a theological thing. Instead, they're like, hey, these guys are talking about something and they're stirring up trouble. And so what they're saying is, what can we do to keep them quiet? What can we do to stop this from happening even more? But here is the dilemma, as we can see from what they're saying. The dilemma is that a miracle had been performed, a miracle that not just the people, but also the Sanhedrin, they say it themselves, we can't deny it, that it is a sign from God. So God did something miraculous. It says, but they're denying the fact that it points to Jesus. 
And they're afraid of the people because all the people have seen this. And so they're like, we've got to do something. So verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak no more to anyone in this name. They were trying to separate themselves and create distance between them and Jesus. So this is what they come up with. They said, okay, we, we can't refute what they're talking about. We can't deny it but we're gonna keep them quiet. So they make this decision. We're gonna threaten them and tell them they can't speak. So verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So you can imagine this. Peter and John come back in the room and they say, okay, listen, you're done. Stop talking about Jesus. They decided on a middle ground. They're not going to just strictly acquit them and tell them they can go on their way. That would give off a, 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 that would have a bad look to the people. Then further they'd say, oh, this must be true then what they're talking about. But they also did not want to, uh, to punish them. And so what they did was they found this middle ground and they tell them, Hey, you can't talk about this anymore. And they threaten them not to talk about it. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So Peter and John respond and answer with integrity, yet they refuse to compromise. Their association with Jesus and the Holy Spirit had forever changed them. So much so that they could not contain it, nor they could be restricted to speak of it. That's what a relationship and the power of the Holy Spirit can do to all of us. That it's so life-changing and life-transforming that there's nothing we can do to not talk about what Jesus has done for us. Nor the ability to stop sharing about it because no one can tell us we can't. Because it's unable to be restrained. And what they say to the Sanhedrin, to the council, they say, listen, you you know better than this. You're telling us not to do this. You've already admitted that the miracle was from God. And Jewish tradition also established that that they knew that you answer to God above answering to man. So they were telling the Sanhedrin, they say, hey, you've got to judge for yourself because you know if this is from God, like that supersedes what you're telling us to do. So you be the ones, we can't, we're not going to listen to you, but you be the ones to decide whether or not any of this is, is right or wrong. And the Sanhedrin knew exactly what they were saying. They just didn't want to get into that debate. They wanted this thing to be over. And Peter goes on in verse 20 and he says, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John were witnesses to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. They were there as he taught and as he gave commands. 
there was no way that they could stay quiet. There was no way that they could stay quiet. They had to talk about it. And that's what a life centered on Jesus does. When Jesus is our focus, we can't help but do and live our lives the way that Jesus asks us to. They had to do it. They couldn't. And it, this, and what the Greek refers to in here, it's not talking about like it was just the desire that they had. Man, I really want to share this. No, what it's, it, they couldn't stop. They couldn't stop it. They had to do it. That's what a life centered and focused on Jesus is like. So this morning, I, I want to ask you this question, and I'll tell you this, through studying and preparing for this message, I have not been more convicted than I have been this past week preparing for this message. And why I say that is because I had to ask myself, when was the last time the excitement and the passion and the love for Jesus that's in my life, when has that come out last? That when I see someone that I don't know what, what, the, what their condition, the condition of their heart is, that I am not compelled to ask a question, say, do you know Jesus? Do you know where you're going? I love Don Kiss, not just because he allows me to go hunting on his property, but because he has got a heart like I have not seen in, in many people. We were, we were down hunting a week ago and, and his brother had had a stroke and, and he was telling me about it and he was communicating with his niece and we're sitting in the cabin. And Don doesn't even know that I'm, I'm gonna say this, but I'm sitting there in the cabin as he's on the phone with his niece and he's talking about, he says, well, I hope, I hope I'm going to have a chance to continue sharing more of Jesus with him. He says, because I want to I, I wanna see him again. And then he started talking about his older brother to his niece. He said, you know, uh, he said, you know, Charles, he gave his life to Jesus before he passed. And then he says, and this is what stood out, and it actually like stunned me for a second. He said, what about you? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And I was just stunned by it because that, I don't usually go around to people and just, hey, how's your relationship? But I loved it because I have unsaved family. I have family that does not know Jesus. And I'm just being completely transparent. There are times when I'm on the phone with them or sitting across from them, and it doesn't even come across my mind to ask them how their relationship with Jesus is. That is convicting to me. But a life centered on Jesus, we can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And I want to tell you this. The Holy Spirit convicts. And what that means is the Holy Spirit will convict us. He will point us and point out the things that we've done wrong. But the thing is, is that the Holy Spirit always points to the way out, and that is Jesus. Condemnation is from the enemy. The enemy will always condemn. And it says, you've screwed up, you've messed up, you've wasted the opportunity. Man, 
you'll never be able to do better. Condemnation will always keep us down. If you're here this morning and you're hearing this and you're going, oh, I'm terrible. I, like I told you, I've been convicted all week by this. But I'm encouraged because the Holy Spirit's saying, yeah, you've missed opportunity, but you've got a lot more. And you can do it with Jesus. And I'm telling you this morning, if you're sitting here and you're going, oh, I've messed up, I've screwed up, it's okay because Jesus is the way out. Verse 21, and when they had, had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. The council is dumbfounded. They don't, they don't know what to do, so they threaten a little bit more. And what they're doing is they're setting a precedence that if the disciples and the followers do not do what they tell them, they set up action so that they can further bring about legal consequences for what they're doing. But they threatened them more. But what did they have to do? They had to let them go because everybody was praising it. They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people. It goes on, for the man on whom this this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You kind of wonder, you're like, why? I don't get it. What's up with, what's up with that? What, what Luke was doing was showing you, Listen, I'm 42 years old. I don't think I'm very old. But what they're saying is, you know, you're about halfway through your life at this, at this point, okay? You've lived a lot of life, okay? They, it's, not like, it's not like this guy just walked into town, into the city, that they didn't know who he was, and then a week later goes, oh, look, I'm healed. No, they knew this guy all his life. He'd always been there. The other thing is that if your body is going to heal itself, the best chances of that happening is the younger you are because the older you get, our bodies just don't regenerate the way that they used to be. And so what Paul is doing, Paul, or sorry, Paul, what Luke is doing here, what Luke is doing is showing the reality of Jesus, that this is a Jesus thing. It's a Jesus thing, and this thing is real. So again, all of this goes back to Jesus. All right, let's just look at the progression of the events from the beginning of chapter four. A miracle is performed. Okay, that miracle points to Jesus. After the miracle is performed, that miracle leads to an explanation of the miracle, which is a further explanation of Jesus. It points to Jesus. From the explanation, it stirs hearts to trust in the message of Jesus, and people believe the numbers grow because of Jesus. Well, then opposition starts because growth is happening, but the opposition comes because of Jesus. Peter and John are arrested, put on trial, gives further uh, platform for them to share about Jesus. Do you hear the theme yet? It's always all about Jesus. Okay, so then they, the, the, the council, they can't even refute Jesus. And so what do they do? They try and keep the message of Jesus quiet. Again, it's all pointing to Jesus. Peter and John, uh, Peter and John uh, against threat, 
They say, hey, we can't keep it quiet because of Jesus, who he is and what he did. And so they had to let him go. And then guess what? People were praising God because of Jesus. It's always about Jesus. It's always all about Jesus. That's what our lives are about. Are we doing the work of Jesus? Are we sharing Jesus with those that do not know him? We need to do it. If we hear, understand, and accept the message of Jesus... We are obligated to share it. We are obligated to share it. Listen, Jesus is the only plan of salvation for this world. We have to share it. We cannot keep it quiet. We've got to let people know. If you're living a life centered on Jesus you will face opposition. And if you are living that life, I'm telling you, keep going. Press in. Seek after him more. If you're not living a life centered on Jesus, then you need to press in. You need to seek him. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life because it's always all about Jesus. So what do we do from here? I don't want to just present to you information, knowledge from the word of God, but I am hoping that you will pick on something, pick up on something that will challenge you to take some next step towards God and what he wants to do in and through your life. And we're going to open up the front here and allow you guys to respond however God is is placing on your heart. But I've got to ask you this question. Is your life centered on Jesus? If your life is centered on Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come and find a place and just seek a new filling, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit because we have got work to do. There are people that don't know Jesus. And if they don't know Jesus, they will not spend eternity with him. Maybe you're here and you say, I don't, my life is not centered on Jesus because I don't even know Jesus. It's super simple. It's super easy. It's just surrendering your heart to him. So I want to ask you here, I'm not even going to ask you to bow your heads or close your eyes. The life-changing, transformative power of Jesus makes it so that we can't contain it or restrain it. And if you're in this place and you would say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand up and just come down and find a place up front. 
and begin that relationship with Jesus. Just begin to seek him. Surrender your life to him. Confess your sins to him. Allow him to do to you whatever he desires to do. And then seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit enables us to live life more effectively. Maybe you're in this place and you'd say, I've made that decision before, but I definitely have not been as close to Jesus as I want. I just want a fresh start with him. I'm gonna encourage you and challenge you to do that same thing, to get up out of your chairs and come down front. I'm gonna invite our prayer teams to come. There's gonna be some people. If you, our prayer teams will be off to the sides that if you want actual prayer from somebody, just go and find them and they would love to pray with you. But if you just wanna seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a fresh new filling of the Holy Spirit, you wanna give your life to Jesus, I wanna invite you to come down front, find a place kneel, stand, just surrender your life, seek after him and let Jesus do what only he can do in your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We love you. You are so amazing. And God, we don't want to be quiet, not in some obnoxious way. We really want to share the love and the power and the grace and the forgiveness that a relationship with you gives to everyone. So God, would you help us to do that? We thank you. We love you. I pray you would speak to every heart in this place as we respond right now in Jesus' name.